Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does this draconian new immigration law do exactly? Increase border patrols, taller fences, a uh, piranha moat? Oh, no. It makes it a state crime to be in the U.S. illegally. Legal immigrants must carry paperwork proving their status. <laughs> you know, that's tough. It's not unprecedented having to carry on your papers. It's the same thing that free black people had to do in 1863. <laughs> Lord knows that didn't leave any residual anger. We all remember the jokes about Arizona, nationally ridiculed as the, quote, meth lab for democracy. If those barbs still sting, maybe it's because the state has, in some ways, found its way back to center stage for all the wrong reasons. We know that hundreds of thousands of phony ballots were dropped into these drop boxes and they were counted. The media still won't believe it because they're on a mission to discredit that. But I'll tell you what, people are waking up to that election. In between all that is Republican Doug Ducey and two eventful terms as governor. He wanted to improve the state's national reputation. Obviously, that hasn't gone completely as he had hoped. And he wanted to transform the state's economy, cut its taxes, and make state government move at the speed of business. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. Today, we're talking to the governor as he winds down his eight years in office. You'll hear what he thinks of his tenure. It's a time that began with the state still shaking off the housing crash and the Great Recession. Now that we're hearing today about a 27% drop in the number of homes sold last month compared to June. 27%. That is terrible news for anyone who has been counting on or driven to selling the family house. It included a teacher-led revolt at the state capitol for higher wages. This movement was born out of decades of neglect. This movement was born out of years of living paycheck to paycheck. This movement was born out of the experience of looking into our students' eyes and knowing that our state, the people who sit in this building, do not fund their success. That's what started this movement. That's why we're here. A once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. But this positivity is too high. What it means is that the virus is widespread and the more activity that is happening in our economy the more the spread will continue. Again, validation that you are safer at home. And a presidential election for the ages. The faint sound of hail to the chief can be heard. Ducey didn't take the call. And with his signature affirmed, he's rejecting Trump's ever more aggressive attempts to stall certification of elections in swing states. Later in the day, Trump addressed a meeting of supporters in Phoenix and blasted Ducey. We sat down with Ducey in one of his offices overlooking the state capitol. 
Well, thank you for your time, Governor, and not just for today, but for all your appearances on The Gaggle. We truly appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Good to be back. Thank you. This time's a little different, of course, because unless you want to hang out for the next few weeks, this is your last time on the show as governor. So we want to talk to you about the big picture, your two terms as governor, what you accomplished, what you wanted to accomplish, and and that sort of thing. And we will start by asking the big picture question. How do you size up your eight years in office? I'll leave it to you and and other pundits to to write the story. What I would say is we've left the state better than we've found it. And if you want to talk about accomplishments along the way, I think a number of things that that I'm proud of is that our economy has been transformed. It wasn't that long ago we were known for construction and call centers. And just yesterday, we had the president of the United States flying out to be part of TSMC and the major semiconductor manufacturer globally being here along with the leader of Apple and, and others. And that, that's just one of, of many things that has totally transformed our economy. Anyone that wants a job can find a job from the service sector to high-tech, high-paying jobs. And our pipeline is full. So the momentum is going to continue for decades. On top of that, of course, universal educational choice was a major milestone. It's something I ran on. It took all of eight years to get it done, but now Arizona is the gold standard for educational freedom, and I think that will spread to other states around the nation. We have the lowest flat tax in the country, and we wanted to get our income tax as close to zero as possible. We couldn't get it to zero, but it's better than any other state that did have a tax code, and our relationship and reputation with Mexico has never been better and stronger. So those are those are things that I I look to and that were part of the vision of Opportunity for All eight years ago, and I'm proud of where we are. One of the things I remember you talking about was government operating at the speed of business. You brought your business sensibilities to the office, and you wanted to transform the way business and the government of Arizona operated. How do you think you did on that front, and what still needs to be done? Well, we got after that right from the get-go. My first year in office, we had a $1 billion deficit. So I was able to apply some of my private sector skills, which are much different than government. And I just decided that we would spend less than what we were bringing in. We balanced that budget in the first year. If you remember, that wasn't all that popular uh, around the state and with many of the stakeholders. But we got our finances right. And then we began to make real investments in what was possible in the state of Arizona. I ran on kickstarting the economy. So I did a lot of the interviews with decision makers and business leaders. Myself used the Super Bowl that first month to help promote the state on a national stage and around the world. And then today we have fewer employees in state government than we did eight years ago. This is in the fastest growing county in the country and one of the fastest growing states in the nation while getting our finances right, while having hundreds of thousands of additional private sector jobs available, and having additional people in the places that matter, like the Department of Public Safety or Department of Child Services. This is where you need human beings who are forward-facing to serve the, the citizen. And what we've done is not fire anyone except for cause. 
We've used the fact that 24% of the state employees were eligible for retirement in those first four years to allow retirements and attrition to take place and then to replace what was needed with, uh, with, with technology and remove bureaucracy and administration. One of the things I also recall was in 2014 talking about wanting the state to be off things like The Daily Show. You wanted to improve the state's image to the world. As you leave, we can't help but recall, for example, you just saw the president. I don't remember hearing anything about finger wagging uh, on this last visit. But the state's image to a lot of folks is defined by folks who have been election deniers, something you've been on the opposite side of. How concerned are you about this state's image as you leave office after having been so concerned about it on the way in? I think the state's image has never been stronger. Americans are voting with their feet. They and their companies are moving here in, in droves. So we're always going to have folks that are out there doing what, whatever they do. I did my best as, as governor to be the lead spokesperson and salesperson for the state of Arizona. Part of the reason I wanted to do that is, one, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and I loved growing up in the Midwest. But when I came here and my family moved out alongside me, this became my home, and I just loved it. And I didn't like our reputation. I didn't like the way we were being presented. I thought we have an incredible place to live. 70 plus percent of the adults in Arizona were born somewhere else. I don't think there's any better leading indicator of a state's quality of life or economic opportunity than people pack up that U-Haul truck and come here. Now, we will have some folks out there that grandstand on some of these issues. I'm not going to push back on you and other members of the media for giving them outsized attention when they do that. But I don't think people would be moving here, buying a home and investing for the long term if it wasn't a wonderful place. You referenced the shift in the state's economy, uh, the nature of employment and such from leisure and hospitality, as I think of it, to something that's more technologically driven. Talk about the future of this state's employment um, outlook as you look to the future. Do you think that will continue? Does it move in another direction? How much of it will be advanced manufacturing, for example, or something along those lines? The future's bright. There's an incredible uh, amount of momentum. There's so much momentum that regardless of it, who inherits this office, they couldn't screw it up. And not only do we have a great place to live, we have a competitive tax code, we have lighter regulation, we have excellent education, ample water, affordable energy, a wonderful community college system, and with what Michael Crow is doing at Arizona State University and Bobby Robbins at U of A, they'll be able to handle all of the engineering needs that are going to come as, as those schools grow. I think what we need to understand is that it's a dynamic and fluid situation. Decisions that policymakers make have consequences. And right now, like I said, the momentum's there. I have high confidence. There's going to be a downturn. There's going to be a recession. I don't want it to come. I don't wish it on anyone, but that happens in the business cycle. If you remember in the 09 and 2010 timeframe, the only reason President Obama was able to claim that the recession was over was because of what was happening in Texas. 
The country had lost 1.4 million jobs, but Texas had recovered or added 1.9 million. I think in many ways, regardless of what happens with a slowdown or recession or the business cycle, that Arizona is in a strong position to not participate or not to feel the real pain of whatever happens nationally. What we have going on in Arizona is not a bubble like it was in 2009 and 2010. This is a supply and a demand issue. It's in the favor of people that live here and people that are working here. I will admit that it is hard on young people that are trying to access the housing market. It's hard on folks on a a fixed income, but these are also issues that we can solve in public policy. Speaking of issues and supply and demand and such, one of the issues that has come to the fore, especially in the last year or two, has been Arizona's water supply. How significant is that problem and how confident are you that the state has the ability and the commitment from all the appropriate shareholders to get to something that will be sustainable so that it is not an issue moving forward? There's nobody better in the country on water than the state of Arizona. Here we are in the fifth largest metropolitan area in the nation. We're in the middle of a desert, and we've got people moving here by the hundreds. They're digging a pool. They're planting a front lawn, and it's not affecting our industries. Taiwan Semiconductor, Intel, the other companies that I've bragged on would not make a decision with their water needs if they hadn't done the diligence and seen our water outlook for decades ahead. But when you're in this role and responsibility, you have to do things that you will never sense any gain or advantage on your watch. And I'm lucky to stand on the shoulders of people like Carl Hayden and Bruce Babbitt and John Rhodes and John Kyle. And I think some of the things that we were able to do on top of the Groundwater Management Act in 1980 was to do the drought contingency plan. And that was something that we had to get legislative approval on. We had to work with all the seven lower basin states, the Department of Interior, and our federal government. And we're going to complete out, there's 25 days remaining, so you may want to come up for one more podcast after we complete what we did this year with the Water Authority, which we call WIFA, the $1 billion investment, and what will be the largest desalination project in the world that will be happening in Arizona. It's what they do in Israel, the only other place on earth that is actually superior to us on water. And it's not water that is so expensive. It's the transportation of water that costs money. We've already taken care of the transportation part of it in the Central Arizona Project. We're going to work with the nation of Mexico and the Sea of Cortez to bring water to the Central Arizona Project, which will give us abundance for centuries into the future. There's a few I's that we need to dot and T's that we need to cross before we get that done, but we've been working on this now for several years. That's what my last visit to Israel was all about, and we will have that completed before I hand the baton to Katie Hobbs on January 2nd. You talked a lot about wanting to be an education governor. You were pulled into that issue, it appeared to me at least, more than I would have expected from Prop 123 and the dedication of land trust funds temporarily to help augment the state's budget on education, to the Red for Ed battles where the state was essentially pushed to provide more wage resources than what you had originally offered, and then what I imagine you view as your crowning achievement on the voucher program, the uh, expansion that has been nationally lauded. Vouchers are unconstitutional. Voucher style. That's a scholarship 
program. Okay. But yes, I, I am very proud of that program. Are you surprised at how much of your bandwidth got taken up by education? Do you feel like the issue is now on a fundamentally different footing that is where you would have expected to see it eight years ago? Well, I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish in education. I think many in the press, and of course, when you run for office, they all want to talk about the amount of spending that happens in education. I can't think of anything else coming from the private sector that we, we measure by amount of spending, as if that were the, the measure of success. If it were, places like Baltimore and Detroit and Washington, D.C. and Chicago would be the finest K-12 education systems in the country, except they're not. They're, they're the worst in the country. So I wanted to shift the discussion to outcomes and results. I want our kids to know something of value when they leave the classroom, especially after 12 years of seat time. It's why the first law that I passed was the American Civics Act, and now that's happened in dozens of states around the country. But I also realize that we do need funding for education. That's why I wanted to solve that educational lawsuit that I inherited in 2015. We were able to do that successfully through Prop 123. We put $11.4 billion additional dollars into K-12 education over the last eight years, more than any other state in the nation. We did it while lowering or simplifying taxes every year. And I think it's a combination of both the resources and the focus on, on growth and proficiency in, inside the classroom. So I'm not surprised that it took up so much time. If you look at state budgets across the nation, it's over 50% of every state's spending. So if a governor's not talking about K-12 education, they're not talking about the most important thing in their state. It'd be like a president of the United States not talking about national defense or foreign policy. And I think Arizona's education system is not only in a much better spot financially than it was eight years ago, it's also the, the gold standard for educational freedom and, and choice. Arizona's education system will be the leading innovator as America navigates out of what has been a flatlining of K-12 since the early 80s. The program funding that we got through Prop 123 will expire during Governor Hobbs's tenure. How concerned are you and how concerned should other Arizonans be about the sustainability of the resources that education will require in that future? Well, hey, listen, we had to leave something for Governor-elect Hobbs to do. And I imagine there will be much more than that on her plate. But some of the naysayers on Prop 123 that were overly concerned about the Permanent Land Endowment Trust Fund, and I, I realized that funding was there because I had served as treasurer before I became governor. I think that the legislature will find a very simple way to extend or improve this. And those dollars were put there to help support Arizona's education for our children. So I think whether it's ESAs, public charters, public districts, there's funding available. You know, we have many issues that need to be addressed in state government. Money is not one of them right now. We are flush with cash. Our rainy day fund has never been higher. By law, you can't put another penny inside it. I think last time we checked, we're at a $5 billion surplus. I think the greatest challenge 
for the next governor is to make sure we have a responsible financial outlook because this budget surplus and this economy, they don't last forever. Probably the most painful period as governor had to have been the pandemic. And you took a lot of criticism from folks who wanted you to shut things down more aggressively and more long-term. You heard from others who said you were killing the economy in the process and wanted you to open things up more. We've lost nearly 32,000 Arizonans to COVID in that time. What, in hindsight, do you wish you would have known then that you have learned in, in managing all of that? Well, I took COVID seriously right from the beginning. I listened to subject matter experts, people that had actually dealt with epidemics in, in the past. I'm very thankful for Dr. Kara Christ, who I think is among the finest Department of Health agency heads in, in the country. You know, 50% of those folks quit during COVID because it was such a stressful time or something that they did not sign up for. I made the best decisions that I could in real time, given the information that I had. I'm confident that we set the right priorities. We prioritized life, livelihoods, and individual liberties. And there was so much about COVID that was wrong that we were told by people in Washington, D.C., and many of these federal agencies. And hopefully this will be a wake-up call for them to reform, to not bring politics to what they do on behalf of the nation and its people. And uh, I think it's a real wake-up call to many of those institutions. One of the things I think even your critics have noted with some respect and maybe even admiration was the way that you handled the certification of the election after 2020. You certainly took some heat from the then president, Donald Trump, over this. Don't think he's forgotten that completely. And it can't be said that that was necessarily to your benefit in any real way. Do you see that as among the more important moments in your tenure as governor? Is the lesson only you wish you hadn't brought your cell phone to the table? I mean, how do you view that period and its long-lasting effect on the public? I think these are the things that you sign up for when you run for public office. There's going to be a test somewhere along the line. You don't know where that test is. And I found that one rather easy to pass. I was following the law. I was following the oath I took to the United States Constitution and to the Arizona Constitution. I only wish all my decisions were that easy. What do you think of the condition of the Republican Party that you have led in many ways as the highest elected official in this state and the concerns over election integrity, the loss of high-profile races that this state has not seen for Republicans in, in many years, they seem to have embraced an ideology that is very different than your own on that. Is there a lesson there? I think there is a lesson there. I do think we're losing some of these races in states where we should be winning. I think there's a hopefully a, a, a realization of focusing on what's next and that elections are about the future and that candidates and campaigns really matter and that we are a party of broad coalitions, hopefully a big tent party. Uh, that was what I brought to both the 2014 and 2018 effort. 
the wind was at my back. Thank you to President Obama in 2014. And the wind was in my face in 2018. We had more success uh, in, in 2018. I think that's because of the record that we, we had. So I would say there are issues in, in both of our, our national parties right now that need to be resolved. My concern is, is more on the right. And I think it's in the uh, extreme wings. And as we, as we head to the 2024 cycle, it's hard to imagine that right now. But I think that's already begun, that the party and the candidates that are most successful will know that Americans want to hear about what's in their future and not about the past. Speaking of the future, not too far off in that future, you will no longer be governor. What are your plans? There are more elections if you choose to take part. I've heard your name in the mix for things like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. What is it that you want to do? What is it that you think is the best use of your skills? I want to finish strong. and As I mentioned, the water deal is taking up quite a bit of time to make sure that we have that properly papered before we leave and have the, the board vote and everything that's successful. I'm also going to have a, a seamless and successful transition. I think I owe my successor that and whatever time that takes, I'm going to commit as well. Beyond that, at noon on January 2nd, I don't know. My calendar opens up quite a bit and I want it to continue to open up for some time. I'm going to, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to take my wife on a couple of trips that she deserves we're empty nesters. I'm open-minded to whatever the future holds, but my thought was to finish as strong as I can in this responsibility and then to take some time and, and see what's next. One last question. You came into this office with the experience as the state treasurer, but there's, I imagine, no real preparation that truly prepares one for being the state's chief executive. What have you learned in your eight years as governor that you wish you knew at the beginning and any advice to governor-elect Hobbs as she begins that journey? First, I would say that you're right. It doesn't matter how large the organization that you ran before you become governor. There's a learning curve when you come into this office. I've always thought that people selection is incredibly important and the hires that you make to bring on your senior staff and the hires that I've been able to make along the way. I'm so proud of the highly talented, intelligent, and hardworking people that I've been able to work with on the eighth and ninth floor. That's a very pleasant surprise that you don't necessarily know about when you're running around the state with hopefully a driver and maybe a campaign manager back in, in the home office. And I think I may have put a, a lot of importance on that transition when I received it in 2014 and thought that we had to have everything done before Inauguration Day. And I remember you give a big speech on Inauguration Day, and then the following Monday, you give your State of the State address, and then the following Friday, you release the budget. And then the following Sunday, we had the, the Super Bowl, and the whole world was watching, and I was meeting with business leaders from all over the country. And I remember convening my senior staff on the Monday after Super Bowl Sunday. And I said, congratulations, you have successfully fooled everyone. We actually appear like we know what we're doing. And we really then dug into getting our arms around the state government, about the $40 billion combined budget, the 35,000 plus employees, the 220 boards and commissions, and 
47 agencies that all report directly to the governor. But I don't know that there's any way that you can know that before you have that responsibility until you want to bring those people in the room. And it's not so much telling them what you want because they're well aware they've seen the campaign. And I almost felt like I could hear the 47 agency heads thinking in that first meeting. They were it was very quiet. It was very chilly. And I think what they were thinking is, we'll outlast you. We were here before you came and we'll be here after you're gone. We were able to bring them into what we wanted to accomplish. And today we have a much more streamlined and effective government. The people that run these agencies are highly talented and we have an immense amount of ability in state government. And uh, I'm proud of what they're doing. And they're not partisans. We don't check their party registration. We ask them to commit to a mission for that agency, some metrics in which they can measure themselves by, to have transparency around taxpayer monies, and then to memorialize what they're going to do for the next 90 days and, and the last 90 days. And I think if my successor can, can take some of those good people, and she's going to measure different things than the Ducey administration did, that our state government will continue to, to function very effectively. Very good. Governor, thank you for your time. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Merry Christmas. And if I don't see you before the uh, inauguration, Happy New Year. That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. As a reminder, you can always reach out to the Gaggle via email at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word, all spelled out. Don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan and Amanda Liberto. You can follow them at Kaylee Monahan. That's K-A-E-L-Y-M-O-N-A-H-A-N. And at Amanda Liberto. And that's L-U-B-E-R-T-O. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.